Father, we love You. We are so grateful for all that You're doing in our lives. We're grateful to worship the one true living God. And Father, to be part of a place where You're changing lives, where sinners are being saved, where saints are growing in their knowledge of You and in their faith, and ultimately where You're being lifted up and glorified. God, we ask this morning that You would have Your way with us. We pray that You would help us, God, to put aside our expectations of what You should or shouldn't do or what church should or shouldn't look like, and that we allow You this morning to have Your way with us. I ask, Lord, You'd help me to preach Your Word in the power and demonstration of the Holy Spirit, not in man's wisdom, not in man's strength, not with crafty or cunning words, but purely in the power and demonstration of the Holy Spirit. And I pray this, year, this morning Your Word would go forth into our hearts, that it would reach us in our hearts and change us from the inside out. God, we do pray for anybody here this morning who has not truly come to know You in the free pardon of sin, that today would be the day that the blinders come off, that they see You for who You are, and they run to You and find love and mercy and grace, salvation in Jesus Christ. Have Your way, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Quickly, by way of introduction, I just want to recap uh, in about five minutes um, where we started last week. The Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says, And you He made alive who were dead. We discussed the reality that without being made alive by God, that spiritually speaking, we're dead. And that in biblical terms, in uh, correct theology, understanding the word dead in the Bible does not necessarily mean the heart quit beating. It means being cut off from. It means being separated away from. So to be separated from God is to be dead to God. And what God did through the cross, through Calvary, through Jesus, He provided a way whereby we, men and women, could be born again. Born of the Spirit. Forgiven of our sins. Our sins are the things that keep us from God. Our sin is, our sin nature is what keeps us distant from Him. But as we just heard it sung about, the blood is what bridges that gap and brings us back into a right relationship with God. We looked at the reality in verse 2 that in the way you once walked, that true Christianity is a turning away from one life to following Christ. And that it's not correct to claim that we're Christians or that Christianity is just a bunch of sinners that look like all the rest of the sinners of the world, but we're saved by grace. No. He said, in which ways you once walked. Now, that doesn't mean Christians are perfect. It doesn't mean that we never sin, but it does mean we have repented of sin that we have changed the course of our life, that we have turned from going our way according to our understanding, according to the ways of this world, and we have did a 180 and now we're following Jesus. And as we follow Jesus, do we grapple with the flesh nature? Of course we do. Do we grapple with sin? Of course we do. But the reality is there's a difference between grappling with sin there is a difference between battling the old flesh nature and walking in sin. And true Christianity 
is leaving one realm of living in sin and doing it my way and stepping into another and following God. It is a course of the world that you once walked. That's good news if you haven't come out of that course because what it tells us is this. It's possible there is a course of deliverance. It is possible for no matter what life you've been brought up in, no matter what you're facing, no matter what course you're on, it is possible for God to supernaturally change your course forever. Your destination from hell to heaven and your life here on earth from living in the ways of this world to walking in the way of Christ. We see that we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh. And last week we were reminded, all of us have our stuff. All of us. In once We once all conducted ourselves. Now your, your list and your mess and your life might not be the same as mine, but every one of us at one stage in our life, we walked according to the course of this world. And so we have no business looking down on people who have not changed the course. Who have not supernaturally, by the grace of God, been saved and brought up out of the world that they're in, planted their feet on the foundation of Christ and begin following Him. We have no business looking down on that group of people because that group of people was us. But what does verse 4 say? But God. Had it not been for God. It wasn't by our wisdom. It wasn't by our strength. It wasn't by our decision. We just decided to be a great person. It was the grace of Almighty God coming to a crash course in our lives, changing us from the inside out, putting within us a new nature, a new heart that desires and hungers for the things of God. And we finished with really the thought who is rich in mercy. And I want to say it again this week. You know what it means to be rich? It means to have more than enough. That's what rich in its purest form it means. It's just abundance. So rich, don't know what you're going to do with it. And this week as I was thinking more about the thought of how God is rich in mercy, He's rich in grace, He's rich in love, I thought about how overwhelmingly magnificent that is because If God had to be rich in mercy just for me, I'm telling you something, it would require quite a bit of mercy. He'd have to be very rich. But God is not just rich enough to take care of my needs for mercy, my needs for forgiveness, my needs for love. He is so rich in that that He has an abundance of mercy and grace and love and forgiveness for every human being in the entire world. It's a magnificent thought. And whatever your need is this morning, trust me, God is rich in mercy. You can't outsend the grace of God. You can't outsend the mercy of God. His mercy and His grace are greater than all of our sins. You can reject His mercy. You can reject His grace. But it is so great, there's nothing you can do that exhausts His mercy and grace where God folds His arms and says, well, I just can't find enough mercy to forgive you if you really want to be forgiven. I can't just find enough power to change your life even if you really want to be changed. It's what you've done is too bad. What you've done is too wrong. You, you waited too long. God is rich in mercy and rich in grace. Verse 5, 
And when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive. Paul brings back this thought of being made alive. You know, preaching on spiritual things is a difficult thing to do. Because most of the people in the room, on any given occasion, most of the people in the room are not going to understand what you're talking about. And so as a pastor, as a speaker, as a teacher, we are compelled uh, at times to try to teach something and preach something that everybody would understand. But I'm here to tell you this morning, that's really not biblical. Paul was greatly misunderstood a lot. And Paul said it in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and 3, he explained that spiritual things are Foolishness to the carnal-minded man. Foolishness to him. He cannot understand them, he says, because they are spiritually discerned. And so until we've been born again, we can't really discern spiritual things. And so what a person is apt to do, and I'm telling you, I've fought it over the years, is in our flesh, we want to try to kind of come up with something that everybody in the room is going to understand and everybody in the room is going to say, well, I can apply that. You know, go out and be a good person. Go out and help my neighbor. But if you're really going to reach people with spiritual food, you've got to be willing to put spiritual food out there and know that some people are going to think it's foolishness. I've seen it a lot of times here at Crossway Church. That's the reason after a service that, that you know, one person can, can bawl their eyes out and, and be moved by God and come up and say, God spoke to me about this and this and this, and God was moving. And then in the same service, by the same person, someone says, well, I just don't understand what that preacher's saying. That was just over my head. It's not necessarily that it was over their head. It's just that they don't have eyes to see. Now, the same thing is true concerning the lost and the saved. There's, a, there's an application, though, to the Christian. We are to be ever-growing, ever-maturing in our faith. There are certain things that I understand now in the Word of God that I didn't understand ten years ago. I was just as saved then as I'm saved now. But I've learned and I've grown and I've received, if you will, the revelation of the, the application of God's Word to my life. This is important that we understand as Christians that when we show up, we need to have an expectancy that I'm not just going to go through the motions. I'm not just going to show up at service and sing a few songs and hear the preacher preach a sermon. I'm coming to hear from God. And I don't know how God's going to speak to me this morning. It might be through a song. It might be through a prayer. It might be through the sermon. It might be through a combination of all those things. But somehow, some way, I'm showing up with an expectancy that supernaturally God Himself is going to work through these avenues to speak to me. Now, spiritually speaking, it takes the Spirit of God to do that in a person. It don't matter how well you articulate it. It does not matter how well you explain it. It does not matter whether you preach it loud or you preach it quiet or you preach it just like this person likes or teach it just like this person likes. None of that has anything to do with spiritual discernment, with spiritual sight. It requires the supernatural work of God. And that's why you'll see a husband and wife driving home after service. One of them is incredibly moved and, 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 and talking about, just thinking about all that God did and their, their heart is stirred. And the other person, all they can think about is how they wanted to get out there and go eat. It's sort of like 
Last week we talked about the child in the womb, if you were here last week. And that until that child comes out of the womb and enters into another realm, he has no idea what air is like. He has no idea what, what sight is like. He has no idea what, what, what really hearing is like with his ears being unplugged. And so it's an entire different realm. And we've got some mothers in this place that have just had babies. One of our specialties here at Crossway Church over the last many years is we have lots of babies. I think there was one point in time last year we had eight people pregnant at the same time. So, if you don't want to get pregnant, do not drink that fountain right out there. Watch out for it. But with that analogy, you, I think about a, a mother and a father that uh, are getting their child, the, the baby room ready, right? And the baby's about to come and they get that nest egg syndrome and so they want to get everything ready and they, they, they paint the room and they put in the crib and they hang the things from the ceiling and they just can't wait. It doesn't matter how bad you want your baby to see their new room. You can step in the middle of it and point that belly around this way and point that belly around this way. But guess what? The child sees nothing but darkness. Something has to happen even though the room is there, even though it is finished, even though it is full of colors, even though it is filled with things that are just for this child. Something has to happen for that child to experience it. What has to happen? Birth. This is why Jesus said to Nicodemus, a man must be born again. Nicodemus said, how can a man be born again? What's he going to do? Enter into his mother's womb a second time and then be born? Jesus said, no, I'm not talking about natural birth. He said, unless a man is born of the Spirit. This is spiritual birth. And once you pass from death, as Paul says, we who were dead were made alive. Once God has made you alive and pulled you out of death and placed you in what the Bible calls life, and your eyes are open to the reality of God and His presence and spiritual things, and, and that this is true, and, that, and that, that you have a relationship with God, you see things differently. You hear things differently. You experience things differently. You're still in this realm, but our life, as uh, the Apostle Paul also says later, we are of this world, or Jesus said to be of this world, to be in this world, but not of this world. So I'm in it. I'm here. I'm experiencing it, but I'm not of it. I've been born again. I belong to a new system, a new realm. It's one of those things you can do the best you can to explain it, but it sounds like craziness until you've really been born again. Can I tell you, I've seen people that have been in church their whole life that have a difficult time with what I just said. And many of them, the reason why is just because you go to church doesn't make you born again. And so they have a difficult time with spiritual truth and with spiritual things because they know and they sense, I don't get it, I don't see it, what's he talking about? But you need to understand something this morning. Going to church doesn't make you saved. Making the conscious decision that, you know what? I'm going to become a Christian. And by that, what you mean is you're going to try to start doing the things this book tells us to do. You're going to say you believe in Jesus. 
you're going to go to church, you're going to join the you know missions team, you're going to work in children's ministries, you're going to get involved in all these things. That's not new birth. And the, the tragic reality is you can do all that stuff and still be lost. Jesus said you must be born again. But I want to advance this now to the fact that many of us have been born again. The true church of God, we have been made alive. And here's what you need to know. We were made alive for a purpose. When Paul starts this in Ephesians chapter 2, it's really one constant thought all the way, really through the, the, at least Ephesians chapter 6. The whole last, these four verses are one constant, or chapters are four, are one constant thought. And he starts out by saying, you were dead. You used to live according to the old, the customs of this world, but God made you alive. He pulled you up out of that. He gave you new life. He opened your eyes to, to the reality of His plan for your life and, and the reality of Himself. And He wants a relationship with you. And now, you once used to walk in the old ways of the world. You once used to walk in the customs of the world. But there's a purpose for this. He raised us up together in verse 6 and made us sit together in the heavenly places with Christ, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches, there's the exceeding riches of God again, of His grace and His kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So he says, you are not only saved up out of the world and pulled up out of it and given a new life and spiritual life and a relationship with God just for fun. God has a plan for your life. You're His workmanship. He's got a plan for you. He's got a divine design for your life. Did you, did you realize that that passage... Um, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, that is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Did you ever realize that that passage was placed right here in this thought? It's important to understand context, 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 context. Because there are people who will point to this passage to say, well, you know, Christians are just sinners and they live like sinners like everybody else, but we're saved by grace. And then, and then, when, and then when a pastor or someone who properly teaches the Bible tries to hold people accountable for living what they say they believe, they say things like, well, you know, it's not by works that we're saved. We're saved by grace. Not understanding this exact passage that this is put in, is put in the middle of Paul saying, you once walked like that, but not anymore. You were once dead, but now you're alive. We're saved by grace, not of works. But you are the workmanship of God, and God has a plan for your life. You see, that's context. It's difficult to argue that you're saved by grace if you're not living like you're saved. Listen, you're either saved or you're not. That's the bottom line. And if you're saved, you're saved by grace, not of works. There's nothing you could do. You could work your whole life and try to be the best person in the world that you could ever possibly be. It's not enough to pay for your sins. The blood had to be shed. And when you turn to Jesus in faith, you'll be saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. But trust me this morning, you will be saved. 
you'll be saved and God will change your life and pull you up out of there. For we are His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. God has good works in store for you. Good works. And I want you to understand something. God wants to bless you. God wants to make your life wonderful. God wants to take care of you. God wants to love you. But you need to understand what that means in a biblical term. That doesn't mean that God wants you to have a bigger house than all your neighbors. That He wants you to have a nicer car than the person across the street. Or three extra ones. Or an extra home, you know, for vacationing. That He wants you to be wealthy according to this world standards. When I tell you that God wants to bless you, that's not what I mean. What I mean by God wants to bless you is this. God wants to give you peace that passes understanding, even in the midst of your storms. God wants to give you strength so that in the middle of your weakness, you're, you're, you're raised up in supernatural strength to show the power of God. God does want you to have a happy marriage. God wants you to have happy relationships. God wants you to be free of anxiety and worry and fear. And these are the important things in life that money cannot buy. But more than that, God wants to bless you for the purpose of working through you. And you never really understand authentic Christianity until you get a hold of this. It's not really about you. It's not about me. It's not about Crossway Church. It's about a God who loves this lost and dying world who sent His Son to die on Calvary's hill so that this lost and dying world could find a Savior in Jesus Christ and what God wants is that message and that life to penetrate us and then flow out of us and reach others. And in some degree, each and every one of us are His workmanship created for good works. That's not so that God can do good works to us, but that He can do good works through us. God wants to do good works through you for the purpose of building and furthering His kingdom. Now, if you read Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 3, and Ephesians chapter 4, you'll find it's one constant thought. And if we go to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1, Paul is still thinking of the same argument here. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, I beseech you, that means beg you, to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness and longsuffering, bearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul says, I beg you, Christian, I beg you, walk worthy of the calling by which you were called. It's a high calling. It's a holy calling. You have been called to represent the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one true God in everything you do, in the way you talk to your wife, in the way you talk to your children, in the way you talk to your husband, in the way you work, in the way that you handle yourself, in everything that you do, we have a responsibility to be glorifying Him, to be pointing people towards Him, and to be walking worthy of the calling to which we were called. Now he says, with all lowliness and gentleness and long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Why would he say that? When you really are honest about who you were before God changed your life and where you'd be today had God not changed your life, I don't care who you are, my friend. You don't have a reason to brag. It don't matter how far you've come with God, and we should go a long ways with God. It don't matter how much you know the Word of God, and we should know the Word of God. 
It doesn't matter how much you work and endeavor to bring honor and glory to God. We should work and endeavor to bring honor and glory to God. But the fact is, no matter how much you do it, no matter how good you are at it, you'd be nothing without the grace of God. You wouldn't even be saved. And when I keep that in perspective, it only makes sense that I would do everything I do with lowliness and humbleness. Because who am I? Without God, I'm nothing. The Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 7, that in me, that is in, 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 my, in my flesh, within me, there dwells no good thing. The only good thing that comes out of me is the life of Christ, which He supernaturally implanted into me because of His love and His mercy and His grace. And when I keep that in perspective, you better do the work you do in humbleness. We ought to have that, that, that attitude of lowliness and gentleness with one another. You know, you never really know what everyone's going through. You don't know. You don't know what people's hurts are. You don't know what their pains are. You don't know what they're suffering through. You don't know what their history is. You don't know their background. So let's be cautious not to judge people who aren't as spiritually mature as we think they should be or who handle a situation the way we don't think they should handle it. And let's, let's deal with them with lowliness and gentleness, understanding they might just be doing, going through something you have no idea about. And so let's love them with gentleness. Let's love them with kindness. Let's hold them accountable. As a Christian, we have the right to hold each other accountable. I have the right to come and say, Hey, brother, that's not the right way to handle that situation. That's not the right way to act here. That's not the right way to, to, to do this. Now, I'm being compassionate about it. I, I, I'm willing to acknowledge that you might be dealing with some stuff I have no idea about but I'm still going to hold you accountable to walk worthy of the calling with which Christ died for you to live. And so, it's about the attitude of the heart when we handle these types of situations. Now, look what he says in verse 17. He's still talking, same same thought. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. This is a clear passage that honestly flies in the face of our modern day seeker-friendly, if you want to call it that, movement. Which is the basic teaching that really Christians don't change and that really change is such an incredibly long process. And listen, change is a process. But we, th- this movement uses that as an excuse not to tell people to come up out of sin. Almost to even speak as, as sin is, is, you know, it's acceptable. It's okay. I mean, we all sin. Let's not even call it that, okay? Let's just call it mistakes. Do you never make any mistakes? We all make mistakes. And we, we have this tendency in our American culture to water down the danger of sin. And I want you to understand something as your pastor. While I will stand here and tell you, you will never be sinless. I will also stand here and tell you that what sin you do have in your life will affect you drastically. It will hurt your relationship with God. It will hurt your relationship with yourself. It'll hurt your relationship with your spouse. It'll hurt your relationship with your children and everything else in your life. Sin is a big deal. 
It is such a big deal that Jesus had to come to this world and plead and die on Calvary's cross for it. So let's not treat it like it's some flippant thing that it's, you know, everybody does it, so let's not talk about it. Let's just talk about being happy and being the best person we can be. No. Paul said, you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. That simply means the rest of the people of this world. Those who are not God followers. Now I'm telling you, that needs to be a clear message of the church. You need to understand something. If you're a Christian here this morning, whether you're part of this church or any other church, if you are a Christian here this morning, you should no longer walk in the ways of this world. You should walk worthy of the calling of your life. What does he say? Having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. There's that word blindness again. They're ignorant because they can't see. Having their understanding darkened. Verse 19, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard Him and have been taught by Him as the truth is in Jesus. Now here's what I want us to see. The next three verses are what I really wanted to get to this morning. Listen to them carefully. That you put off concerning the former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, we'll look at what that looks like here in a moment, but I just want to deal with those three verses. First of all, you've got to put off concerning the former conduct, the old man. You've got to put him off. We just went through a series on love. And when we finished and wrapped up that series and looked at the application in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, I made the statement, you have to make the choice to do it. You can't pray away a choice. You can't fast away a choice. You can't come to the altar and beg God to take the choice away from you. It is a choice. It is written. It is settled forever in the Word of God. You've got to put off the old man. That's your responsibility. God's not just going to do it for you. God's not just going to force you to put on the new man. As a Christian, you are truly faced with two opportunities in every situation that you face. One opportunity is, I'm going to yield to the old nature. I'm going to handle business the way I normally handle business. I'm going to do this according to my way, according to how I think, according to how I understand. The other opportunity is to say, I am going to yield to the Spirit of God. I am going to yield to the new nature. I'm going to be controlled by the new nature, and I'm going to put off the old man and put on the new man. But listen to me this morning. It's a choice. And here's what you need to know. It's not just a one-time choice. It's not the type of choice that you can come to the altar this morning at invitation time and say, God, I choose from now on to put off the old man and to put on the new man. That's a good thing to say. It's a good commitment to make. I would not come forward and making that commitment. But the rubber is going to hit the road when you leave and someone cuts you off. The rubber is going to hit the road 
when it, next year come Black Friday shopping and someone steps in and takes the last thing that you wanted and you got up early to get it and now you're not going to get it and they push their way through. Or when somebody in your family that you've always had a problem with, they push that button. Trust us, our families know how to push the buttons. No one else knows how to push. And they push that button and, and all of a sudden, now you're faced with a choice. And I'm here to tell you this morning, in that moment... Brothers and sisters, you've got to put off the old man and put on the new man. And it's a choice. It's a conscious choice we've got to learn to make in all the decisions that we do. Notice what it tells us about the old man. In verse 22, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust. I want to break down this passage this morning. First of all, here's what the Bible tells us about the old man. He grows corrupt. He doesn't get better. He doesn't turn around. He doesn't do a 180. You can refine the old man according to the customs of this world, but as long as he's the old man, he's still the old man. That which is flesh is flesh, Jesus said, but that which is spirit is spirit. The old nature is always going to be the old nature. God's not real interested in changing the old. He gives us something new and then gives us the choice to put off the old and put on the new. We live in a culture, even in the church, it has crept into the church where we've become this self-help idea. And the idea is, and I might be oversimplifying this to make a point, but we basically tell sinners, lost people, and for that matter, it still has an application to the church, that really you're a good person, okay? You've just had some bad things happen to you and that made you do things that really you don't want to do. And so... That what God wants to do is help you become a better person. He wants to change this about you and change that about you, change this about you. What God really wants to do, according to the Word of God, is give you a new nature altogether. And the only thing that the old nature is good for, the only thing that the flesh is good for, is crucifixion. That's why Paul said, you know, I have to die daily. Jesus said, anyone's going to follow me, they have to take up their cross. And there is a cross to be taken up. It's the willingness to lay down my life, my desires, and nail it to the cross. And trust me, it does. It, Paul knows what he's talking about when he says, I've got to do it daily. The old man grows corrupt. He's not going to get better. All the self-help books in the world can't make him better. There might be a, you know, a person that, that struggles with uh, rage, violent, beating up their kids, beating up his wife. And, and is it possible he can get some counseling and, 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 and have some steps to help control that so that he doesn't beat up his kids and his wife anymore? Yeah, that's possible. But understand something. That's not salvation. The old nature is still corrupt. And it doesn't mean his old nature is getting better. It just continues to grow corrupt. That's what the Bible tells us. According to the deceitful lusts. You know, lust is not just sexual. Lust is really the desire for more. It's the desire for, for, for taking whatever I feel I need to make me feel better. It is indulgence. And, and, and you can lust after all sorts of different things. But here's a reality. And let's be honest with ourselves this morning. Lust is deceitful. You go get the thing you want and you'll wake up empty the next day. You can indulge in it until the, as long as the day is long. You can indulge and, and get more and more and more. You still wake up empty. It still won't satisfy you. See, lusts are deceitful. 
They're like an itch that, you know, it's just terrible and you want the thing to go away and you feel like the only way to make it go away is itch it. But then when you itch, guess what? It's, itch is even worse. That's the way that lusts are. They're deceitful. And somewhere as Christians, we've got to wake up to that and say, quit fulfilling the lust of the flesh. These are deceitful. They're meant to drive me away from God. They're meant to, 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 to make me less than what God wants me to be. They're deceitful. They're lies. They're not true. I've got to put off the old man and put on the new man. And so the old man grows corrupt. And how are we renewed? In the spirit of your mind. I, told, I said this last week. It's not just about the, the desires of the flesh. It's about the desires of the mind. I've got to be willing to turn and, and, and from, from the old way of thinking. I've got to allow God to purify my mind about what is right and what is wrong, about what is pure and what is not, about what is best for me and what is not best for me. My mind has to be renewed. And that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. You've got to put on the new man. Now, if you're not saved, you can't do that. There's nothing worse than trying to put on the new man if you don't really have a new man. I'm telling you, trying to serve God in the power of your flesh is the most frustrating, terrible experience you'll ever do. But when the Spirit of God gives you life and you learn to yield to the Spirit of God to put on the new man, trust me, it does begin to flow out of you. But you've got to be willing to put on the new man. Put it on. When you are facing situations this week, when someone pushes your buttons, when you come up against things that cause you to be fearful and anxious and worried and, and all those types of things. I want you to think about this simple three words. Put it on. Put it on. You think about it in that moment. Put it on. I'm going to put on the new man. It's my decision. It's my choice. Nobody else can stop me from doing it. Nobody can force me to, to, to act in the old way. And No, I'm going to put it on. Put it on. Put it on. Put it on. And what does he say? Created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. I want to close up this morning. And I want to say that there is such a thing as holiness. And we are expected to live it. Holiness. It means to be other than everything else. It's like our God. He's other than everything else. There's really no way to describe how different He is than everything else. That's what the word holy is meant to describe. And as Christians, we should live lives of holiness. One of the things that's happened with this whole movement that I talked about earlier is not only have we dumbed down sin, but what it has begun to do is cause us to confuse holiness for legalism. And when someone talks about being holy, when someone talks about living a holy life, when someone tries to challenge us to live a holy life, we say, well, that's legalism. There's a big difference between legalism and holiness. God hates legalism, but God loves holiness. God demands holiness. And our lives should reflect that. What does it look like in action? Therefore, put away lying. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Don't give place to the devil. Let him who steal, steal no longer but rather let him labor with his hands. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. Did you know the Bible talks about 
the, our mouths, the way that we talk should change when we're saved? No corrupt word. I don't care who you are, you cannot argue that cuss words are not corrupt words that fall into this category. Christians shouldn't be cussing. I'm not saying if you cuss, that means you're not a Christian. But what I am saying, quit it. Put off the old man, put on the new man. Walk worthy of the calling by which you were called. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. And finally, in verse 1 of chapter 5, I'll stop as our worship team comes. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. Um, Paul, if you ever studied the Apostle Paul, his thoughts are amazing. I mean, he deals with being made alive, which deals with new birth. And here, he's still talking about we're children, right? That's what happens. When you're born of somebody, you're that person's child. He says, we are children, so be imitators of God. This is the command. This means that I can't say, well, I'm not God, so don't look at me. Or I'm not Jesus, so don't look at me. Poor little fellow. I'm not sure what I said, but I heard his feelings. Either that or Doug pinched him. Be imitators of God. That's what the Bible says. If you're a Christian here this morning, God expects you to imitate Him. Are you going to do it perfectly? Of course not. I'm not saying that this morning. I think you know that. What I am saying is, we're without excuse to excuse our sin and excuse the things that we do in our life that we know aren't Christ-like, that we know don't bring Him honor and glory. No, we have been bought with a price. An awesome, awful price. And because of that, we've got to put off the old nature and put on the new. Lord, I pray that You move all across this room this morning. We thank You for Your Word. We're thankful for the new nature. We pray in 2014, God, that You would help us to put it on. To be ever conscious about putting it on. The new man, put it on, put it on, put it on. God, I pray that You move all across this room. There may be people here this morning that are saved. They're Christians. God, they've really been quenching the Spirit, yielding to the old nature. They've been consciously making the decision, I'm not going to put on the new man. May Your Word this morning convict our hearts. May we repent of that and turn to You, follow You. God, may You give us a hunger and a deep desire to be imitators of You, to bring You honor and glory. Pray this morning for those that are here that aren't saved. God, that somehow, some way, You'd open up the eyes of their heart. And this morning, though they may not understand it all, I pray that You'd open their eyes enough to see that You are God, that they are in Your presence that they are safe here, that there is salvation in Christ, and that you'll save them.